the Beatles had this charm, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this charm when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh yeah, where's that? The toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome to September, the end of our first year here at Toppermost of the Poppermost. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. So we're looking at a year of the Beatles. It's kind of hard to believe. We haven't been at it quite a full year because we started a little bit late last year. Oh, we, started, we did start with the month of October. My time really flies, both for the Beatles and for us. Yeah, it's hard to believe that... <laughs> We are really only three or four months away from I Want to Hold Your Hand hitting the American charts. It's really hard to believe that almost a a year before, I mean, they start with their debut, um, well, in October 1962, What We Do, and to think that they've grown from that to the explosion, both sonically and then, of course, on the charts, both in the UK and then the US, of I want to hold your hand. I mean, what a short time to grow in, in sound and in songwriting. That's astounding. Here seems the appropriate time to bring in an old Texas statement, which came from the Houston Oilers in the 1970s. And the coach, O.A. Bum Phillips, he's the one who wore the cowboy hat indoors. One year after the playoffs, after they lost, he says, Well, last year we knocked on the door. This year, we banged on the door. Next year, we're going to kick the zombie in. Well, that's <laughs> without a question what the Beatles did in 1962, 1963, and 1964. <laughs> that's a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, well, not applicable. It's like, yeah, there's no other way to put it. They did what the football team could not do. They took it over the top. There's no way of following on from that quote, is there? oh all right so we're looking at the year of 1962 to 1963 some of the things that surprised us and well of course how the beatles accomplished what they did in this year the first thing that i will say surprised me even though i had some idea frank ifield he's our buddy but he keeps showing up He really did. I'm just astounded at how many hits he had in this period. And he really kept yodeling alive on the charts. Shout out to Susan Gagne, a favorite listener of ours who pointed this out, that he really was such a popular figure in Britain and did have some hits in the U.S. as well. He made the American charts and, you know, it just surprised the heck out of me. We were the first Australian to have an American hit with I Remember You. I was, well, I so remember that song. And you appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was the mecca for all artists at that time. Many times I appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. I remember there was an article that said, um, what's wrong with this phrase, um, Ed Sullivan entertains? And the answer was, Ed Sullivan never has entertained in his life. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, he was... um, he was a funny man, actually, to follow, because he never did his homework. He didn't know who it was on and pronounced names wrong. You know, we really don't think about poor old Frank at all these days. I really don't hear much of, about him. I mean, I really knew very little about him until we started this show. Jolly what? That's kind of it. <laughs> Our good friends at VJ. That's right. And of course, we learned even more about his connections to the Beatles and very interesting connections (laughs) to the Beatles. Paul's bestie. Paul's bestie, that's right. (laughs) And George, I'm sure, also did not quite appreciate Frank so much. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's very true. What happened was I'd, I'd had my second big hit at that stage. This is in 62. And I was uh, doing the Moss Empire circuit and I ended up in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, I remember the stage doorman came down and he said, uh, um, there's a gentleman downstairs who'd like to see you. He, I think you should see him. It looks very important. He's got a suit and he's, <laughs> and he's carrying a briefcase. So I thought, well, that sounds important. What did he say his name was? He said, Einstein. <laughs> and I thought, Einstein? <laughs> I may be a star, but I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, it turned out... It was, it was Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. He was close. He was a genius in his way. Did you give the Beatles some advice? No. Any advice for them? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I was just watching them. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, there was some advice I gave them, actually, because when they came in, they, they were told to, to watch me. When I said came in at the theatre, we went to a theatre called the um, Peterborough. Yeah. And they'd never worked in England. Outside of Liverpool, they hadn't worked right. anywhere. And they, that was why he came to see me, because he wanted to put them on my show. So they got some exposure because they had this song out at the front. So they, they were your support act. And they were my support act. <laughs> wow. So I got them on this show, it was sight unseen, because I'd never seen them perform. Yeah. But um, I was keen to sort of give them a break, because, I mean, we all need that. Mm. You know, we all had breaks from other people. Mm. You know? I bet they were great. So when we, put, when we did the actual show, um, they didn't do a rehearsal for some reason. They didn't get there till late. But they said, oh, don't worry about that, because they were used to just playing a mm. time. So when they did do the rehearsal, the show actually, the, you know, the guy introduced them, the curtain opened up and they started and I thought, bloody hell, that sound is so loud. <laughs> you know, and I had visions of the manager coming down to me and telling me, you know, we've got to get them off the show because people were up and walking out. Really? And they were dreadful. They really were. I think so. And then on the American side, Rick Nelson. It's kind of amazing to think just how many different songs he had on the charts the American charts through 62 and 63. Yeah, I mean, he was a steady presence. Of course, I knew Rick Nelson and, and that he had a number of hits, but didn't know how many singles he released during that period. A lot. I mean, a great number. So, I mean, he was such a consistent presence in just that year alone. As the monkeys would show a few years later, being on television, playing your songs weekly doesn't hurt your presence on the charts. For sure. Then the third thing I want to bring up, which we've kind of mentioned several times, but the presence of all the old 50s rockers. We watch all these documentaries, and they always kind of seem to say, oh, well, you know, things had ended by 62. Chuck Berry was in jail. Buddy Holly was dead. Elvis had gone into the army, but... All of those artists, whether they were alive or not, were still making hits. That is a really good point, because I think that is so true. When documentaries and all, they tend to say that, like, oh, they were just done by 62. Not true. No. I mean, we see a number of it. Fats Domino was still making hits at this point. And as you said, Elvis, the Everly Brothers, they were still on the charts. And of course, as we've learned in Britain, particularly Buddy Holly, posthumously, you know, a number of, of songs that he had recorded before his passing were being released in the UK and doing quite well. So absolutely, uh, 50s artists were still making an impact on the charts. And as a little teaser for when we get to it on the American side, Norman Petty has another hit, albeit one that Kit does not like. That's right. I'll get my apologies in ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> we apologize a lot on this show. That's our thing. <laughs> because someone's always going to complain, so we'll preempt those complaints by apologizing ahead of time. Exactly. Apologies exactly. to the fans of anybody. Yes. <laughs> right. A preemptive apology. There you go. Okay, so we started in October. Love Me Do had a slight climb in the charts, although, you know, it really wasn't as bad as we kind of been led to believe through the years. Their climb was no worse than anybody else's climb. It's the first single. It's maybe not absolutely their best work, but it's the one that introduced them to the British public. Exactly. And it's a typical 
song of their early days. They would write songs that were directly addressing the audience. Love Me Do, with, of course, the flip side P.S. I Love You. It was just that era for them. And of course, catchy, sing-along kind of song. And it did the job. It was a great introduction to their sound. And even with their reliance on the pronouns, the lyrics this month are not great lyrics. Even from the very beginning, the Beatles kind of understood, yeah, let's write something which is at least a little bit more interesting. Yeah. And Martin, you said something about the growth and sophistication this first year. If you could expand on that and lyrically... This is a good point. Yeah, I just think they start with Love Me Do, relatively simple structure and lyrics. So they had that as the first single. Then the next single, Please Please Me, is like a level up Then from there. It's a bit more ornate lyrically. It's got more going on lyrically and structurally as well. And then you go from there to From Me To You, and that's another rise. And then with the one that's going to hit the charts this month that we're going to get into, She Loves You, that's an even further step forward it just seems that the building successively in both the songwriting and the arrangement skills as well because the arrangements get more complex as well it's a good point you're making like with please please me you've got the play on words there and that's something that they would do in other tracks but please please me i mean that alone is as you pointed out uh, martin is a leap ahead from love me do i mean you've got please please me there's also of course a little naughty pun there. Just jumping a few months, you see that growth in sophistication. Yeah, it's amazing how John Lennon playing innocent can sound so much raunchier than, well, Bobby Rydell trying to sound dirty. <laughs> we'll get oh, there. We'll get to oh, that. <laughs> but but it, it, it is worth mentioning since we're talking about Please Please Me here. Exactly. But the Beatles could pull it off a lot better. And then the other thing which we kind of haven't mentioned is the sales did just ramp up over these 12 months. Love Me Do sold a couple hundred thousand. Please Please Me, even though it was a number two or number one hit, was less than half a million. For Me To You, got up six, seven hundred thousand. But by the time She Loves You, it's selling a million copies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just in the UK, or more or less just in the UK. That's pre-orders as well, isn't it, before it came out? Yeah. Well, I think it may have been into when it came out, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, She Loves You ended up at almost 2 million. Not quite. It never quite got to 2 million, but almost. Right. You see the steady progress in sales, in lyrics. Also, they're becoming even more adept at learning about how to hook the audience in terms of beginning a song, like in She Loves You, that beginning drum riff, things like that. Amazing how quickly they're learning the the tricks to writing a memorable pop song. And they were going from punks with a lot of energy on the live stage. One of the tapes which has just come out is the So School tape. By mid-year of 1963, they were full-fledged performers. Oh my gosh, they were tight, a tight band. And not surprising considering, you know, when you go back and look at their tour schedule, they were playing live dates every day when they weren't in the recording studio. So it's kind of no surprise that they would be such a tight professional unit by now. But still, wow, Ringo just sounded fantastic. All of this is just proving that they were ready by the time December came and by the time Capitol finally opened their eyes, you know, maybe it's better for them that they didn't just like hit with even for me to you or even she loves you. That may have been just a little bit early for them. It was all in place by the time they landed at Kennedy airport. Oh, no doubt about it. They were ready. You can tell why they handled it so well. They were seasoned performers by that point. So, okay, just some of the statistics. January 11th was when the Please Please Me single would be released. It would be number two on the official charts. It would be number one on some of the other charts. It is typically regarded as their first number one, and, well, we won't take that away from them. (laughs) Of course not. In March, on the 22nd, the Please Please Me album was released. It was been 70 weeks, 70 weeks in the UK album chart. That's still impressive. And it's been more than half a year at number one on the UK album chart. 
while that's on the charts, that album, how many other Beatles albums will it intersect with? On the charts, that's 70 weeks. So that's March of 63 through May of 64. Right. Okay. So definitely with the Beatles, that would be into um, Beatles for Sale. And then Hard Day's Night. Right. But Hard Day's Night wouldn't be until, what, later in the year. Right. Yeah, that that was summer of 64. Well, we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. So, you know, maybe one. It, it definitely intersected a little bit with, with the Beatles. So you'll have at least two Beatles albums on the charts at the same time. Pretty much all through the 60s, I would guess. Oh, yeah? Then on April the 11th, the For Me To You single was released. It would spend... 21 weeks on the UK charts. We're just now reaching the end of For Me To Use run. At certain points, you've got multiple Beatles hits in the upper echelons of the singles charts. Even this week, while not multiple Beatles songs, you certainly have multiple Lennon-McCartney songs in the British Top 40. Right. Definitely. On July the 12th, their first UK EP, the Twist and Shout EP, Twist and Shout, Taste of Honey, do you want to know a secret? And there's a place. They were kind of playing off of the fact that other acts had had hits with some of these songs. Right. Yeah, Brian Poole's Twist and Shout. You had Acker Bilk's Taste of Honey. Yeah, that's right. And then you had Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret. So yeah. I mean, it's like, why are we letting all these other people have Get hits with them. our material? Yeah, that's right. Why are they getting all the money? <laughs> <laughs> How long do the EP charts last? There was an EP chart in the UK, although the weird thing about the EP chart is EPs would frequently find their way over to the singles chart. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because, of course, in America, EPs were not a thing at all. They just never really caught on here. So I would guess it went all the way through at least 67, 68. I vaguely remember Magical Mystery Tour being number one on the EP chart. Oh, right. That's true. By the early 70s, it was gone for sure. Yeah. So, okay, we move on to where we are now. The brand new single, which just came out, She Loves You, Back With I'll Get You. As we say, that would become their first single to sell more than a million copies. Please Please Me was certainly, I mean, their first number one single. But, boy, She Loves You is, it's official. You know, their first million selling single. Beomania is here. All due respect, Taiwan will hold your hand, which would absolutely break the dam. She Loves You was pretty close. Yeah. Exactly. And certainly having those two songs together was something a little bit special. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, She Loves You would stay on the British charts for 31 consecutive weeks. Wow. That's an impressive run. Well, I mean, the statistic we keep mentioning is that for 90% of the year, George Martin acts were at the top of the charts. And actually, that's something else that I wanted to mention with looking back on the year of the charts. It was the year of George Martin, too. He was really becoming a force to be reckoned with, obviously with the Beatles, but also, as we know, he produced Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer, the Foremost. He was proving himself to be a hit maker, too. Well, and he would even have a chart on the American side, as we will see. That's indeed. Yeah, that's right. So, all right, we close out this review with the second Beatles EP, The Beatles Hits, which would be released on September the 6th, which consisted of For Me To You, Thank You Girl, Please Please Me, and Love Me Do. So they're putting all those singles together. Okay, maybe they're thinking She Loves You selling, so people will want to go back, and we don't want to make them have to go dig through those dusty old archives. Here's Here's a shiny new disc, which... Has all those songs which you want to hear. <laughs> Dusty but, old archives. But, but not the great B-sides. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Thank You, Girl. Mm-hmm. That's a B-side. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> they weren't going to stick She Loves You on, on the EP. It's, it was the current single, so they didn't have four singles to put out. Hey, they could have put My Bonnie on there. Yeah, that's true. I wonder how they overlook that. They didn't have the rights to that. Oh, that's true. Different label. That was something else from the past year that kind of amazed me is they had enough hit-making power that they resurrected my Bonnie. That's pretty amazing. And the fact that they basically were like putting together greatest hits packages (laughs) this early. (laughs) If you haven't heard it, listen to the When They Was Fab show that Kit and 
Ken Womack and myself did. We talked a lot about greatest hits and notably red and blue, but also other greatest hits. I mean, I'm sure if Dr. Womack were with us, his comment would be the same one it was at the fest. Too soon. Yes. (laughs) Way too soon. (laughs) They've been around a year. That's long enough. Oh, totally. You know, we're looking back at a year. They can look back at a year. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so into the British charts for September of 1963, we start off with our good friend, the man we just saw at the fest, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas with Bad to Me was number one, and it would stay number one the next week and then spend two weeks at number three. Yep. And uh, by the way, as Ed said, we saw him at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. He looked great, sounded great, and just killed it. The audience just loved him, and he's still going strong. And he's recording at Abbey Road as we speak. We don't know what he's recording, but he mentioned that he has been invited to go do some anniversary stuff, and that he's doing a recording session in the studio. He's probably asleep at this time, actually. (laughs) Well... Perhaps. This, yes. Perhaps. Okay. Uh, at number two, I'm telling you now, Freddie and the Dreamers, which would uh, again stay at number two. So number two, number two, number five, and number six, just slowly starting to move down the charts. Mm-hmm. At number three, the Searchers with "Sweets for My Sweet," which would start a more drastic slide down the charts. Number three, number six, number twelve, and number seventeen. Mm-hmm. At number four. Theme from the Legion's Last Patrol, which we talked about last month. Yep. So it got all the way up to number four. Then it, too, would start its slide, although pretty slowly, the rest of the month, number 11, number 10, and number 11. At number nine, Confessin' by Frank Ifield, our here buddy. He here he is again. King, king of the yodel. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so from number nine, it would also start its decline down the charts, number 12, number 15, and number 20. Mm-hmm. At number 10, Cliff Richard, who we've also talked about. Cliff Richard has never quite seemed so old-fashioned as he does here singing this Ricky Nelson cover, It's All in the Game. Once in a while he won't call, mm, but it's all in the game. Yeah, And he stays pretty close to the original. Too close. Yeah. Too close to my liking. It's like halfway through the record, it's like, why do I need to listen to this? Yeah. But he did have a number 25 hit on the U.S. chart with this in 1964. Wow. Uh, and it was his only top 40 hit in the United States until the late 70s, I think, when he had you know the hit with Devil Woman, which was a great song. I did like that. But he did have a one hit uh, the, with this in the U.S. Interesting that it was with this song. That's probably part of the reason why it hit in the U.S. The U.S., despite everything, liked to play it a little bit safe. Mm-hmm. In a way, I could see maybe why he hit with this one, because you know, he did have on this track a croony kind of voice, the teen idol. Frankie Avalon kind of sound. The, Which uh, hadn't really been his M.O. prior to this. That's true, yeah, because, I mean, he had more of a rock sound. I mean, a little Elvis. So, yeah, interesting that he went in this direction. All right, just two below that record, making its premiere in the British charts at number 12, Is She Loves You. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> But premiering at number 12, I mean, that's that, super, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty good. It is. Yeah. Wow. There's no question that they were kings of the charts at this point. Absolutely. All right. At number 13, the Brian Poole and the Tremlos twist and shout, which would be, again, on its way down. Lots of things on its way down this week. 13, 15, 17, and 25. At number 14, to do Ron Ron by the Crystals which would, once again, also be on its way down, 14, 16, 20, and 34. We talked about this quite a bit over on the American side. This is one of the songs that George Harrison really liked a whole bunch. And I don't blame him. It's a great record. Yeah. Yeah. At number 15, Elvis's Devil in Disguise. Seems like we've talked about this song a lot, hasn't it? It's been around (laughs) for a little while, you know. (laughs) 
Despite the fact that none of us really think it's anywhere near one of Elvis's best. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like it's been on the charts forever. Number 50, number 20, number 30, and number 43. So it's reaching the end of its natural lifespan. Okay, at number 23, come on by the Rolling Stones. And it would just kind of hang out here for the month of September. Moving up and moving down, number 24, number 22, and number 21. At number 27, The Good Life by Tony Bennett. You know, a song that we love. Yeah. But it's just kind of hanging out right around here in the charts. 27, 31, 31, and 35. Mm-hmm. At number 28, Surf City by Jan and Dean. So, you know, kind of as we get to the middle of the charts, we got a bunch of records which just don't move. Right. They're all just hanging out, hanging out in the middle of the charts for September. And it would move from 28 to 26 to 26 to 29. Mm-hmm. Everybody's busy uh, on the surf with the surfboards, aren't they? That's what it is. <laughs> at number 29, Jerry's last single, I Like It. And it would only have one more week on the charts as it would fall down to number 39. Mm. At number 41, For Me to You. So that also would have one more week of the charts as, as it would go to number 44 before it fell off. But I mean, you know, She Loves You is there at the top of the charts. <laughs> Everybody's bought For Me to You. Yep. <laughs> Everybody has it now. <laughs> at number 47, Searching by the Hollies. <laughs> this is another one of those, do we really need skinny white British guys doing... Uh, a song which was clearly a, an African American oriented tune. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, the Beatles covered this. Uh, um, yeah, but the know. Beatles do it much better. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, when I search, I have to swim a river. You know I will. And if I have to climb a mountain, you know I will. And if I have to up on a was okay Lieber and Stoller originally was done by the coasters yeah I wasn't crazy about this version I mean it was all right there's um, some nice harmonies in the middle there but otherwise it's like eh. yeah I thought the Beatles at least had yeah their harmonies were better and they were having a little fun yeah yeah for sure for sure because I yeah because the coasters had fun with it too this one I just thought sounded a little I don't know a little devoid of energy yeah, I mean, the Beatles are the Beatles, of course, but you also have John Lennon doing his silly goon voices. Yeah, that's right. Gonna walk right down that street. Like a Yeah, I'm not searching here. We to Yeah, yeah. which really helped to elevate their cover well beyond what you get here from the Hollies. Yep. And of course, this is still the period of the Hollies where they just were doing covers. You know, we tend to think of them as doing originals and, and you know. This and that is... would take a little while. There, exactly. You know, still, everybody was doing covers. I mean, you look at Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Mm-hmm. Again, thank goodness Decca decided against going with the Beatles because that's where the Beatles would have ended up. Yeah, good point. How'd that happen? Okay, at number 50, still by Ken Dodd. I was surprised at how serious this record is. You know, it plays it straight for the most part. It does. Though we're far apart, I love you still. Still on my mind, I love you still. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a country, well, it is a country record. Kind of that 
Nashville sound. It's sort of country pop. Yeah. But the story of Ken Dodd is fascinating. Yeah, he was uh, born in 1927 in a place called Nottyash, which is a part of Liverpool. I actually didn't know that was a real place until recently. I thought that was made up. <laughs> there's a clip of him with the Beatles uh, in 63, and there's also a, a, they did a radio show together in late 63, and he refers to Naughty Ash University, and he makes it sound like it's something just, it's, this is fake. I just came up with this. No, but it's a real place. It really is. He tried being a ventriloquist as a teenager, but around that time he had an accident on his bike and that's how he got his distinctive teeth because he basically crashed. Uh, and then he, he made his big break at the age of 26, uh, playing a character called Professor Yaffle Chucklebutty. <laughs> <laughs> I see him as somebody who's very steeped in traditional musical vaudeville, but at the same time, yes. there's almost a zany edge that makes me think of what you'll eventually get with the Pythons and, and you got with the Goons. Definitely like that character name. That de- definitely sounds like something right out of Python. Yeah. Or, I mean, absolutely. Of course, by the early 60s, he'd have his own radio show and you know, regular appearances on the television. and What do you know? Did you know that if a bald-headed man puts a kipper under his hat and leaves it there for three months, he can get locked up? <laughs> well, what do you know? Did you know that there is a new sound emerging from Liverpool and being created by a new beat group known as the Dottles? Well, what do you know? If you wait here for the next three minutes, you should learn quite a lot from our guests for this week. A group of young men who know more about the Liverpool sound than most. Who else but the Beatles? <laughs> I watched him and really enjoyed him when he was on the television. It's amazing how big a song this was. You know, this would be in the top 10 British singles of the 60s. I read in the 60s, they said his fame in the UK was such that he rivaled the Beatles as a household name. His record sold millions, and he was considered the last great music hall entertainer. You guys know me. I'm fascinated by British music hall. And it mentioned in his bio that he performed on uh, the BBC musical revival show, The Good Old Days. And I suddenly remembered when I was doing research for the music hall presentation I did some years ago, connecting it to when I'm 64, I watched some episodes that are on YouTube and I'm like, I remember seeing him and I didn't know who he was at the time. And I remember seeing a clip of Ken Dodd doing a good old day show. Martin, we talked about the good old days. We did. I watched that with my grandparents and, and loved it. It's a strange thing though, isn't it, Kit? Because they get really carried away with the whole old-fashioned style of it and the musical style of it because they, they dress up in the style. Everybody does. The actual acts and the audience are all dressed up in like late 19th century, early 20th century clothes. I loved watching that because when I was doing the research for that presentation, I mean, it really did give an idea of what it was like back then. I loved that show. So to bring this back around to topic... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. As mentioned, Ken Dodd did do a bit of television. There's about a 15-minute clip that you can find on YouTube and you can find on Facebook and other places. Uh, he is hanging around with the Beatles and he suggests that they should form a group together. And he comes up with names such as Kenny and the Cockroaches, <laughs> Dottie and the Diddy Men, and Ringo and the Layabouts. I like that one. That was good. And they seem to genuinely have great affection for him. They seem to really enjoying him. I think they have the similar sense of humour between them. It's a Liverpool humour, maybe. Yeah, they have great fun talking about the her. We have always thought that it might be a good question to put to Mr. Kenneth Dodd and the members of the Beatles. Uh, to what extent do they attribute their success to their hairstyles? And we'll start by asking that question now of Mr. Ken Dodd. We call it her in Liverpool, you see. We always had the Judy with the fur her. <laughs> we have a, a fellow went into one of those shops once in Liverpool where they sell those, uh, you know, minks and things. And he says, uh, the girl, he said, give us one of those uh, hurry coats. <laughs> say, I beg your pardon, sir, what fur? He said, for the Judy. Who do you think? <laughs> uh, do you think that he owes a lot of his success to his hairstyle, fellas? 
No, I don't think it helped at all. <laughs> <laughs> it probably would have been better if it was a ball. Yeah. A ball? <laughs> oh, no. No, no ball. With the teeth, I think the teeth and the hair, all the jimmicks, you know, I think you have to have a... I think you definitely have to have a jimmick. Oh, yes, the nose? You've all got jimmicks, haven't you, Lloyd? Eh? What about the nose? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm just like, I don't get this, but it's funny. Ken Dodd sort of had the Albert Einstein hair. Yes. And so, I mean, both of them were popular and both of them were partially popular because of their respective hairstyles. And plus, you know, I could see John Lennon appreciating Ken Dodd for like the play on words and that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, they definitely seem to be having fun together talking about stuff it's at least as good as the markham and wise stuff yeah that we see a bit more frequently very true ken dodd passed away at the age of 90 in 2018 mm-hmm. huge loss all right so we move on to the next week the week of september 10th bad to me was still at number one as mentioned she loves you had moved all the way up to number three wow boy that's fast when you debut in the top 20, yeah. there's not much you could do to uh, either go down or you're going to shoot up further. That's right. At number 35, as we had mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's Buddy Holly with Wishing. A great song. And it would be on its rise. as It, it too moved 17 slots. So the next week would be at number 18 and then on to number 13 and number 10. Featuring the Fireballs, who we will see a bit later. We- this is a very Beatlesque sort of thing. You got Buddy harmonizing with himself. No ADT. He actually had to record both sides of it. That's right. And it's just another example of you know what could have been the kinds of music that he would have still been producing, and just how ahead of his time he was. Like I said, there were that. At, like I've said before, okay. there's that many songs that he recorded or started to work on that weren't completed. That it's amazing what they're able to build from posthumously. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's it's that alternate universe thing. Just imagine if Buddy had lived and had been one of those headliners, and, and it had been the Beatles and Buddy together on a bus somewhere in 1963. You wow. know, that's just a lot of fun to imagine. Yeah, sure is. One of the interesting things about this record, the stereo version, as you mentioned, had overdubbed by the Fireballs, but the mono version was apparently just the raw track. Why they put out the two different masters, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, And there's another mystery we'll be talking about later of (laughs) why they're two different versions. (laughs) All right. At number 44, for me to you, at number 46, Sam Cooke's Frankie and Johnny, the great, great story song we talked about last Great month. record. At number 49, Applejack by Jet Harris and Tony Meehan. We talk about records on the rise. In one week, this would rise from number 49 to number 16. Wow. Wow. 33 slots in one week. Thank goodness. Wow, I didn't Somebody realize thought it. more of this than I did then. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's good. I, I don't know if I'd say it was that impressive. Interesting, of course, on bass, John Paul Jones. Later, of course, of Led Zeppelin. This has a little, particularly at the beginning, a little Spanish feel to it with the acoustically guitar flourishes and the brass. It just didn't really excite me that much. It's another one of those, you know, guitar records in their style. Right. It's got a little bit more life than some of the other ones, maybe, but it's not great. uh, It was all right. Here's another alternate universe for you. What would it have sounded like 
if Jet and Tony hadn't have left the Shadows and it had been done by the Shadows with Hank Marvin doing the lead guitar. Then maybe we would have been cooking with fire. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> then we may have had something. All right. So we move on to the 17th of September. Here we are at number one. Is Woo! She Loves You. Here we go. Third week in the charts. It's topping the charts. And as we mentioned at the opening, it's going to be there for a little while. Just a little. It's, it's <laughs> toppermost of the poppermost. That's right. Nicely played, sir. At number four, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates with I'll Never Get Over You. It would stay around for the rest of the month at number four, number five, and number six. At number 33, Do You Love Me by Brian Poole and the Tremolos. As I was saying, here's their second single. Here's another cover. It's okay. milk toast for me to be yeah, honest i'm sorry this does not compare to the contours I uh, mean, not at all no. no sorry i mean having the funk brothers backing up the contours that record is just so good that original hard to top and sorry brian pool the tremolos fans <laughs> but this doesn't do it it's a pale imitation the Beatles could have done something with it. They would have done something different with it. They wouldn't have just tried to copy the original record, which this really is. An inferior Xerox. You've yeah, almost copied I'm... my notes there. <laughs> I, I've put, I would love to hear a version of this by the Beatles. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see, you know, and I think with Ringo's, you know, hard-hitting drumming, maybe, you know, he could have done something. But I love this. There was a review of it at the time, and... I don't agree at all. It says, uh, Brian Poole and the Tremolo's version of Do You Love Me is noticeably different to the Contours version, with writer and lecturer Andrew Flory describing it as a refined version of a Motown rock song. Instead of a raucous sound offered by the Contours through pitch and rhythm normalization, instrumentation, and vocal timber differences, the Tremolo's created a stereotypical Mersey beat interpretation. I wouldn't call this a refined version. <laughs> I wouldn't really call this Mersey Beat either. No, I, no. I don't think so. I like that it has kind of a live sound to it, you know, as if it were recorded in the cavern or a club. I mean, I like that it has that live feel. But other than that, I think it just doesn't have any of the soul of the original. Yeah. I mean, again, if we're not going to say the Beatles, I would have liked to have heard the big three do this. This would have been right up their alley. That's a good point. I wouldn't call it Mersey Beat, but I'd probably call them a taxi. <laughs> oh, oh. oh! Apologies to Brian Poole and the Tremolos fans. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> All right, at number 36, Trini Lopez with If I Had a Hammer, which we spoke of last month. This, too, would jump high up the next week. It would go all the way up to number 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, you know, we've talked about that record before, important record in Latino rock. It's a good record. Now, here is some real Mersey Beat. At number four, not only is it Mersey Beat, it's from the Mersey Beats. It's love that really counts. I like this song. It's slightly inferior, something off of Please Please Me, but it's good. I like Mm -hmm. the harmonies in the middle in there in particular. It's love that really counts, love that really counts. Love 
it's interesting that it was written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach. The Shirelles originally recorded it, uh, and it sounds very different. It's love that really counts. Believe me, it's love that really counts. And baby, after loving you, I'm here to say that no one else will do. Who cares if you don't show me Paris or Rome? because uh, it was kind of a slow version. And Dionne Warwick recorded the demo version to give to the Shirelles, but the record label liked her version so much that that ended up getting her recording contract. So this song actually started Dionne Warwick's career. Just a side note there. But yeah, it does have some nice harmonies here. It's an interesting record. Bill Harry has a story about the Mersey Beats and Brian Epstein. Quoting him, in the wake of the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Mersey Beats would be signed to Brian Epstein and Nims. However, their association was short-lived as they had a dispute with him and left after only a few months. The dispute was a trivial matter, as Kensley recalls, Kensley being the lead singer of the Mersey Beats. We left him because he didn't buy us suits. He bought the Beatles suits and, well, we were jealous. You look at the photos, they were definitely clothes horses. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) The group, which still exists to this day, believe it or not, with some of the original members, (laughs) say that that's one of their biggest regrets was that they left Brian. Well, I mean, if you're going to leave Brian over clothes, yeah. (laughs) Not a smart move. And apparently Brian planned to have Pete Best become the drummer for the Mersey Beats. But obviously that didn't happen. If you read the contract, you know, Lewis spells out the contract in some detail. It wasn't that he had to have Pete drumming for the Beatles. He just had to have Pete drumming in a band where Brian would book gigs for them. Right. So, mm-hmm. and then the other thing is now, I don't know whether this is true or not, but they claim to have appeared with the Beatles at the Cavern more than any other act. Mm-hmm. You know, possible. It's possible. But as the Beatles went on to worldwide fame, the Mersey Beats would also have at least a bit of fame. They would be big in Germany, and they would even get their own television show on Italian TV. Oh, wow. At number 47, No One by Ray Charles, which would jump to number 40 the next week. Ray killed this. I mean, he just killed this. I just love this. It's Ray Charles. Come on. The only thing I didn't like, and I know I've said this on many other episodes, background singers, little too much. Yeah. You know? The Ray Lats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ray Lats. It's, it's Ray taking it a little bit too far. I agree with you there. there. I've said this about other recordings from this period, not just Ray Charles. Sometimes the arrangements and the background singers were a little overdone. Other than that, Love the Horns, his vocals on air just demonstrate how he combined jazz, blues, soul. He created his own genre. I mean, he just was a bit of everything. Which you can take even more into account when you look at the song he has on the American charts when we get to it. He would prove it even more, but I love this song. And uh, another Doc Pomus uh, song as well that he's written. Yes. Originally Originally by Connie Francis, was it? Yes. Yep. yep. It was the B-side to Where the Boys Are. <laughs> Another one of my favorite songs. <laughs> she said sarcastically. Here's one I will pre-apologize to Foremost fans. Uh-oh. At number 50, the Foremost with 
Hello, Little Girl. It's a John Lennon song. It's a good song, but that opening just kind of, that, yeah, that just kind of ruins it for oh me. Oh, my God. Thank you for saying that. Hello, Little Girl. I wrote that in my notes. What was with that beginning? <laughs> Why? Why did they have the one singer doing that? You jump in halfway through the record, it's a pretty good record. But that first minute or so is like sets my teeth on edge. <laughs> Me too. I actually think it's too fast, slightly. Maybe that's it too, but I'm so glad you said that, Ed, because at the beginning, yeah, I just thought, what? <laughs> Why? What's with the sustained high notes? <laughs> the the Lennon demo is really, really good, actually. I really like John's demo of uh, Hello, Little Girl. Yeah, I do too. It's not my favorite thing he's ever written, but it's a decent pop song. It challenges Love Me Do. Yeah. And yes, the foremost version, although I see your point, Martin, it is a little fast. I kind of agree they could have slowed it down a little bit. But like the second half of the record is okay. Yeah. But yeah, that beginning, I agree. It just, oh, just like gives you the shivers how george martin let that go is beyond me yeah i think it shows john's sense of humor actually as well i think there's almost like a knowing smile there as well i think in the in the lyrics oh the lyrics are fine yeah it's not the song it's not the lyrics it is the arrangement yeah or again particularly the first half of the arrangement if it were just the back half or if they'd done something different for the first minute it would be a fine record right But, you know, when I spoke earlier about how the Beatles really knew how to begin a record to grab your attention, this is the opposite of what you should do. (laughs) Kit's Lessons in Songwriting 101. (laughs) Hey, maybe this will be my next book. (laughs) (laughs) And so the foremost would follow up with another Lennon-McCartney song, one of the advantages of being in the NEM stable. They'd follow it up with I'm in Love. And here's something for you. We were talking about EPs earlier. In Sweden, they put out an EP with the Beatles and the Foremost. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. I I was glad you found this, because I don't know how I missed this. I didn't know that, that they put this out. They marked it as being the Liverpool sound. The Foremost don't get a photo on the cover. The Beatles get their photos on the cover. With She Loves You, I'll Get You, backed with Hello Little Girl and... Just in case. So, I mean, you know, it's both sides of the current single for both of the acts. Yeah. Sweden was very much in the throes of Beatlemania at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll have to give a listen to Just In Case. (laughs) I don't know that song. Just In Case You Might Like It. Yeah, that's right. As long as there isn't that (laughs) high-pitched vocal at the beginning. (laughs) I say cuddle up to me right now. Just in case we have to part. Okay, we move on to the next week, the 24th of September. She Loves You is still at number one. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> at number 22, Then He Kissed Me by the Crystals, which is also over on the American side of the chart. I like the song. It's a really well known song, it's a well written song. The lyrics for the American charts and this song is among them. It's all the same. The the girl groups are all singing. Oh, I went to the dance and he kissed me and held me tight. And then we got married and it's like, yeah, that's all you have to say. (laughs) You know, it's very much of its time. There were a lot of songs with lyrics like this about commitment and that kind of thing. But you know, this is just such a great record. Great Phil Spector production, the drums on this. I love the drums. And it's just so charming. You just can't help but smile when you listen to this record. It is just like the ultimate girl group 
sound. For sure. I mean, For sure. it really is. And, you know, and as I said, the lyrics are very of their time. And it's just that same kind of, as I said, that, you know, we've seen a lot of songs like this, haven't we, on, on the charts by girl groups and all this whole issue of, you know, commitment and, you know. But this month in particular, yeah. they, they just seem loaded down with them, particularly on the American charts, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we'll get to in the next show. Yep, exactly. But I love this track. I mean, and as I said, this is like Phil Spector production at its best. And then backing is the Wrecking Crew, and this was arranged by Jack Nishi, who we talked about last month. Yes, indeed. Just a bit of information for people. There is a very interesting alternative version of this song by the Beach Boys a few years later. I knew that she was mine, so I gave her all the love that I had. And one day she'll take me home to meet her mom and her dad. Let At number 32, the Shadows give us a song called Shindig. Yep. Nothing to do with the TV series, though. Yeah, good thing you pointed that out. It's nothing to do with it. It's got a little bit, I think, of a different sound than a typical Shadows record. I mean, it just sounded a little bit different to me. But it still has all the basic Shadows ingredients. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It just sounded, I don't know, a little maybe on the country-ish side, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I didn't like it quite as much as some previous Shadows songs that we've heard. It's okay. <laughs> At number 41, Roy Orbison with a dual A-sided single, Blue Bayou and Mean Woman Blues. Martin, you were saying that you were a little bit shocked that these two got shoved together on the same disc. Well... I mean, was it a double A side? Because I thought in the UK, Blue Bayou was relegated to the B side. I think it was a double A side because that's the way it's listed in the charts. Okay. How it was credited, I'm not sure. But you know, both of these songs are just so great. It, Roy Orbison at his best. Oh, my God. This <laughs> Two of my favorite songs of his on one single, Blue Bayou. I mean... What a song. The lyrics are beautiful, and the way he sings, it just doesn't get any better. I'm going back someday. Now, and I grew up initially on the Linda Ronstadt version, which I love, too. Yeah, but it's very different. Linda goes into the croon a little bit more than Roy. Yeah, she does. Absolutely. So that was my first introduction to the song. But then, of course, I finally heard his version and uh, the original and, uh, you know, and loved it. And Mean Woman Blues. Well, I got a woman mean as she can be. Shape hips, yeah. Boy, she makes a I got a woman 
It just shows his range that how he can also do rock blues kind of track and you know of course elvis did it as well and, you know when he does that kind of the growl or whatever you want to call it i mean you know he just has such fun with that song he just sounds like he's having a blast Uh, uh, favorite of the Beatles, particularly Paul McCartney. Yes, good point. This is just as good as it gets by him. I love, love both songs. I don't know why the version on the Italian single of Blue Bayou is a completely different take of the song. Yeah, I was so glad that you pointed that out because when I heard it, it just was strange. It was as if that was like a earlier draft or something. Yeah. You know, and they just like, oh, let's just release this. I mean, it was so strange. Wouldn't we get the same thing to a certain extent with some of the Beatles songs throughout the mid 60s? We're not ready yet, but here we have to release something in America now. So here, take this. Yeah. And then George Martin would finish the mix and it, and it would come out the real way. Yep. Yeah, when you listen to it, and you can find it on YouTube, you know, Martin, I really didn't like it as well. I'm going back someday, gonna stay on Blue Bayou. Well, the folks are flying yeah, all the time on Blue Bayou. With that girl of mine by my side. The percussion was a bit different. And I think there was a point where, you know, Roy was even sort of humming and kind of going, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you know, for some of the lyrics. I mean, it just sounded like he was still working out some stuff. Yeah, like he was blocking Uh, the lyrics, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll stick with the final version. (laughs) All right. We close out the British charts with yet another cover of Memphis. I find it interesting just how many times different versions of this song would chart. Yeah, I guess it just shows you what a great song it was. It's a classic. And, you know, and this version is is decent. Wasn't in love with it. But what I was, and some listeners are probably going to say, duh, you didn't know this. But I was excited to find out that Dave Barry you know, Dave Barry and the Cruisers, that he went on after the Cruisers, I guess, they weren't working together. He did the original version of The Crying Game. Yeah, best song he's done, in my opinion. Yep. Yep. I don't know how I didn't know that. I knew it from the Boy George version of many years later. That is such a great song. And his version, I mean, the original is just, it's so eerie and wonderful. Now, one thing about Memphis... Nobody can understand Chuck Berry when he goes, my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall. If you listen to all the times John Lennon does Memphis, he turns that into the word small coat because small coat took the message and he wrote it on the wall. In this version of the song, it's because the phone boy took the message and he wrote it on the wall. It's like phone boy, (laughs) phone boy, listen to it. Help me. That's what he's singing. Well, that makes sense. I well, yeah. I, you know, he's <laughs> okay. what does that mean? Who has the phone? Well, the phone boy has the phone. But oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my observation That's about Memphis. Thing. We have seen probably half a dozen different versions of it in this year mm. so far. Not even counting the Beatles version, which never actually charted because well, they never actually released Recorded. it. But yeah, exactly. Uh, and there is one other. Beatles thing that we can bring in here. A guitar that George Harrison played apparently just once or twice. 
was sold at auction, a Maton Master Sound MS500. Yeah, George's guitar was out for repair, and so during their final gig at the Cavern, George played this guitar, and he gave it to Roy Barber, who at the time was a guitarist with Dave Barry and the Cruisers. Hmm. Dave Barry would hold on to it and would eventually sell it for three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars pounds. Sorry, not so that's even more. It's, oh yeah. So there you go. It helps to be in the right place at the right time. That's right. I wasn't there. <laughs> Damn being born later. George seems to just sort of give away these guitars. I don't need this anymore. Here, you, you can have it. I've noticed that. That is a thing with him. He would just give his guitar. So, yeah, if he gave you a guitar, take it yeah. and hang on <laughs> and to it. And hold on to it for yeah. 20 years. <laughs> it right. is this guitar and take these dozen ukuleles while you're at it that I've got yes. in my boot. Yes. Yeah, he had uh, an endless supply of ukuleles, too. All right. So that is... As is becoming our tradition, Side A, the British Charts. We will be back soon with Side B. See you then. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is it's one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.